Chapter Four of the Reign of George the Sixth, nineteen hundred to nineteen twenty five. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four, nineteen o two to nineteen sixteen. Interest of the National Debt Reduced. The Building of the Palace and City of Stanley. The Royal Academies. George the Sixth encourages the arts, sciences, and literature. Never was any quarrel concluded more gloriously. George now found himself at peace with all the world. He had been victorious against the most potent monarchy on earth, and another formidable kingdom. These successes secured him abroad, but at home all was confusion. The stopping payment of the interest of the public debt had thrown innumerable families into extreme indigence, yet the measure was absolutely necessary, and the very existence of the nation had been preserved by it. But as the war was now at an end, the Parliament took under their consideration the state of the national debt, and after a multitude of proposals, calculations, and debates, they agreed by a small majority that the interest at the rate it then stood was a burden too great for the nation to bear, and appointed a committee to draw up a bill for reducing it. The preamble to this bill set forth the sad internal state of the nation, painted in the strongest colors, the impossibility of paying the interest on the national funds, showed that an attempt to go on in doing it must end in a total bankruptcy and the utter ruin of all concerned. That under these circumstances half the present interest would be of more real value than the whole, in the dangerous situation they were now in. And the bill accordingly enacted that the interest on every fund of which the national fund was composed should be reduced by one half. Footnote that is, from four to two per cent. That the former rate prevailed in 1900 is shown by the figures on page 8, giving £8,500,000 as the interest on £211,000,000 or thereabouts. As the interest for 1903 was, after the change, just £4,250,000, we must conclude that the King had somehow contrived to fight through the war of 1900 to 1902, without any further borrowing. End footnote. History cannot produce an instance of such an event as this being effected with so little disturbance. All ranks of people seemed content with their half. They had lately seen the extreme danger to which the nation was reduced for want of money, and they cheerfully considered that, if they lost half of their income, it was to preserve their lives, their liberties, and the remainder of their fortunes. This great event would not have been brought about with so much ease and expedition, but the path was sketched out by the bill which was drawn up for the same, but which miscarried in the reign of George the Fourth. But it no sooner passed into a law now than its good consequences were immediately felt by the nation in general. Such an enormous encumbrance was no sooner removed than George found his kingdom vigorous and more formidable than ever. It may not be unentertaining to the reader here to lay before him the particulars of the grants of the year 1903 after the peace had taken place. Fifty thousand seamen, including marines and ordnance for sea service, two million nine hundred thousand pounds. Forty-five thousand men, land forces in colonies in Great Britain, etc., and ordnance for ditto, two million two hundred fifty thousand pounds. Greenwich Hospital, thirty-five thousand pounds. Milford Hospital, forty thousand pounds. 
building, rebuilding, and repairing His Majesty's ships, six hundred thousand pounds, to the nine foundling hospitals, ninety thousand pounds, adding new fortifications to Batavia, etc., one hundred thousand pounds, to His Majesty for fortifying other places in the East Indies, fifty thousand pounds, deepening and enlarging the harbor of Hull and docks, two hundred thousand pounds, civil list, two million pounds, total, eight million two hundred thirty-five thousand pounds, interest of the national debt, four million two hundred fifty thousand pounds, total, twelve million four hundred eighty-five thousand pounds, footnote, putting the actual estimates for 1898 to 1899 beside these figures, we find them eight times as great, an army of 250,000 regulars, excluding India, militia, and volunteers, costs us 20 million pounds. A navy of 93,000 men requires 25 million pounds. The civil service estimates to run about 22 million pounds. End footnote. A young monarch of his active spirit was not likely to waste the time which peace left on his hands in idle dissipation. He understood many arts perfectly, and was tolerably well acquainted with most. His favorite, the Duke of Suffolk, was also a lover of literature, and spent a great part of his time in the conversation of men of letters. The arts and sciences at this period in England wanted nothing but encouragement to raise them to a very splendid height, and to make the age of George the Sixth rival any of those remote ones that are so celebrated in history. It is both entertaining and curious to reflect on their state during this reign, and compare it with the present. Those great men whose names alone would have immortalized the age of George the Sixth are now gone, and have left none to succeed them. Indeed, they still live in their admirable works, but have left few successors to their genius and abilities. But to leave this digression, let us take a view of the arts in the period of which we are speaking. George had a natural taste for them and what was of equal consequence to their success, was rich, liberal, and magnificent. Hitherto his time had been engrossed by more weighty concerns, but now that peace left him the master of his time, he displayed a taste and genius in more arts than that of war. London, though the wonder of the world, never pleased the king. Its prodigious size was its only boast. It contained few buildings that did honor to the nation. In a word, it was a city finely calculated for trade, but not for the residence of the polite arts. The meanness of His Majesty's palace disgusted him. He had a taste for architecture, and determined to exert it in raising an edifice that should at once do honor to his kingdom and add splendor to his court. In Rutlandshire, near Uppingham, was a small hunting-box of the late king, which George admired, not for the building, but for its beautiful situation. In his hours of rural amusement the king formed the design of raising a palace. Few parts of his dominions could afford a more desirable spot for such a purpose. The old seat stood on an elevated situation, which commanded an extensive prospect over the adjacent country. It was almost surrounded with extensive woods, which having been artfully planted added the greatest beauty to the prospect without intercepting the view. On one side there was an easy descent of about three miles which led into an extensive plain through which a river took its meandering course. Many villages seemed to rise here and there from out the woods which gave a great variety to the scene 
and the fertile plain was one continued prospect of villages, groves, meadows, and rivulets, and all was in the neighborhood of a noble and capacious forest. Footnote. There is no place of the name of Stanley near Eppingham. The situation described is that of Stoke Dry or Glaston. The river is the Welland, and the distant forest that of Rockingham. In footnote. This charming situation must have struck any person of less taste than the king. He was charmed with it at the first sight, and soon after thought of building a palace on so advantageous a situation. The famous Gilbert, whose name is immortalized by so many works of genius, was at that time architect to the king. He drew the plans of several palaces, out of which his majesty chose one, and immediately set him about the work. Many difficulties were to be overcome before even the first stone could be laid. The fabric was to be built with Portland stone, which could not be brought to the spot without an infinite expense over land. To remedy this inconvenience, the Parliament passed an act to make the river well unnavigable to the very plain, at the bottom of the hill on which the intended palace was to be raised. The same session also granted His Majesty a million sterling towards the expense of building this magnificent pile. The King spared no cost to render this edifice the most magnificent and superb palace in the universe. Gilbert had an unlimited power granted him to follow his genius in every particular without the least restraint. Fleets of ships were continually passing from Portland to Hull, and Lynn with cargoes of stone, which were conveyed in barges to the place where the palace was to be built. Ten sail were sent to the different ports of Italy to load the finest marbles. In short, nothing was spared to make this palace the wonder of the world, but the erection of it was only a part of the king's design. Footnote. It was founded in 1907. End footnote. In the plain above described, His Majesty formed the scheme of raising a city, but was staggered at the thoughts of the expense. However, more the architect hinted to him that if His Majesty was to raise a few public edifices, and remove some of the courts from London thither, they would alone occasion numbers to build near their residence, that His Majesty's fixing his own residence there would also occasion a vast increase of building. The King was pleased with the thought and determined to execute it. The great Gilbert grew the ground-plot of that part which now reaches from St. Mary's Church quite to Great Hollis Street in Scotland Square. St. Stephen's was his work, too, and is a beautiful monument of his taste and genius. That church and the Academy for Architecture, footnote, both erected in 1909, in footnote, were the two first public buildings that were raised. More was the artist who erected the latter, but this deserves a more particular mention. Architecture was one of the king's favorite studies, but its being an art was recommendation enough for that great monarch to encourage it. The plan on which this academy was formed was finally imagined to secure a perpetual protection. It consisted of a president with a salary of two thousand pounds a year. Gilbert was the first. Six senior footnote. The first instituted were Comans, Holt, Moore, Brown, Salviola, the Spaniard, and Stevens. End footnote. And twelve junior footnote. James, Philipson, Pedreo, an Italian, Rickson, Manley, Hare, Thompson, Johnson, Wheel, Place, Richards, and Stevenson, end footnote. Professors had the former five, and the latter three hundred pounds a year each. 
What a noble institution was this, worthy the monarch who formed the outline and the minister that finished the design. Footnote. The Duke of Suffolk. End footnote. George had the satisfaction of seeing Stanley increased beyond what his most ardent wishes could have desired. Most of the nobility and many of the rich commoners, in imitation of their sovereign, erected magnificent palaces. It grew the fashion among the higher order of his subjects to erect houses at Stanley. The Dukes of Suffolk, Buckingham, Richmond, Kent, and Bridgewater, the Earls of Surrey, Winchelsea, Middleton, and Berry, and Mr. Molesworth particularly distinguished themselves by the splendor of their palaces amongst many others. But what gave a prodigious increase to this noble city was the erection of the Senate House. That noble building which is now the admiration of all Europe was the masterpiece of the celebrated Moor. The front is certainly one of the finest pieces of architecture in the world. It was finished in 1913. The same year the Parliament assembled in it, and here I cannot help quoting a passage in their address, as the praise it contains was perfectly merited by this great monarch. Assembled in this edifice, which is one of the many works of Your Majesty's magnificence and princely encouragement of the arts and sciences, we cannot omit congratulating Your Majesty on the completion of so noble a monument of your grandeur in the nation's glory. And we return, Your Majesty, our most dutiful acknowledgments for so splendid a mark of your esteem for your Parliament which led you to erect so magnificent a senate-house out of your private revenue. We join the rest of your majesty's subjects in expressing our admiration for your royal and princely virtues. Your noble encouragement of the arts and sciences added a fresh luster to the title of hero, which your majesty's great actions had before most justly conferred. This session voted the king a million sterling for the senate-house, and granted five hundred thousand pounds a year till his majesty's building should be finished. Nothing could exceed the magnificence of Gilbert's plan for this glorious city. The houses were all built to form one general front on each side of every street. Nothing was used but Portland stone. The streets were broad, well paved, and the buildings not too high. Many noble squares were marked out and some finished. The theatre was the work of His Majesty himself, who drew the plan, and showing it to Gilbert, that great man told the king it had not a single fault but this compliment had not sincerity enough in it. It certainly contains some blemishes, but it is undoubtedly a work of genius. The three centuries before His Majesty's reign did not produce so fine a building. Its simplicity and grandeur are admirable. The Academy of Painting was another institution which would have rendered the memory of any monarch dear to the arts and sciences. It was reserved for the age of George the Sixth to be graced with a list of great artists in this country, whose works should render their own names as well as his immortal. From the foundation of the English monarchy to the age of George, Britain had never seen a painter that could rank with the first class of foreign artists. Footnote. This is rather hard on Reynolds and Gainsborough, both well-known men by 1763. End footnote. But though this great king could not create, Yet he drew by his encouragements and rewards artists from their retirements and set them to work. No genius ever met with even a rebuke from George. Merit was sure to be rewarded. The excellence in any art the certain road to fortune. Gilbert was the architect of the building, and its grandeur is well known. The president of this academy had a salary of two thousand pounds a year, ten seats each five hundred, 
and forty young artists were maintained and had apartments allotted them with pensions of one hundred pounds a year each. Nothing was ever better planned to promote the progress of this delightful art, and its success in England under this reign was accordingly prodigious. Nicholson, an English artist, and one whose name will forever stand foremost in the list of painters, was president of the academy. Besides this appointment he was loaded with riches and created a baronet. The Battle of the Angels in the saloon of the palace which this great man painted is second to no picture in the world. Tompkins, Vere, and Norton were all English artists and not inferior to the celebrated Italians of the age of Leo X. The first was equal to Correggio himself, and the last exceeded Domenicino and Guido. Who does not glow with ardor at the remembrance of the works of these divine masters? Who does not regret their loss? They are gone, and have left but few behind them that can pretend to any degree of competition. The other artists that had seats in the academy are well known. Simpson painted the Jupiter Olympius in the saloon of Apollo, a picture which would alone have immortalized him. The most splendid court in Europe was sure to be attended with a multitude of foreign artists. Spinoza, Martelliot, and Carviante were received in the most distinguished manner by the king and had each pensions of five hundred pounds granted them, besides being liberally paid for their works. Never was any art so much obliged to a sovereign as that of painting to George the Sixth. The palace itself, which has for so many years been the delight and wonder of Britain, was finished in 1915, eight years after its foundation. Never was any building raised so expeditiously. It was indeed astonishing. But the king, sparing no expense, Gilbert finished this superb edifice in so short a time, by means of the infinite number of hands he kept constantly employed on it. It would be endless to describe this amazing pile of building, and it has already been done in all the languages of Europe. The famous Escorial of Philip II of Spain, and Versailles of Louis Fourteenth of France, of both which we read such pompous accounts, were infinitely exceeded by Stanley. The shell of the building alone cost the king above eight millions sterling. The adorning and furnishing it was the work of above fifty years, and the expense infinite. The ceilings and apartments were painted by Nicholson, Tompkins, Vere, Norton, and many other celebrated artists. The king had no sooner begun to build than he sent connoisseurs through all Europe to collect paintings, statues, rarities, books, and manuscripts, and in these commissions he spared no expense. He even dispatched ambassadors to Constantinople and throughout all Asia to make collections, and always choosing the properest men for executing his commands, he succeeded better than any monarch that ever attempted to tread in his footsteps. The palace of Stanley thus became the repository of all the curiosities which the world afforded. No wonder his palace became so celebrated and drew such numbers of foreigners into England, when the collection of pictures and statues it contained were almost equal in value and number of capital pieces to what remained throughout all Europe, and his library contained above 1,300,000 valuable books and manuscripts. This glorious building was not only the residence of royalty, but might properly be called the Temple of the Muses. In his hours of relaxation from business the king here conversed with Reynolds, that great genius, who united the elegance of Mason and the genius of Shakespeare, with Young, whose comedies far exceeded those of the celebrated Simons, with Pine, 
who to the inventive imagination of Milton added the correctness and harmony of Pope. What a memorable epic was it in history when a George the Sixth conversed with three great poets in a palace built by Gilbert and painted by Nicholson. But an event happened that for a while turned off the attention of the king from these sublime employments. End of chapter 4 Recording by Philip Gould